0: And welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff. And today we have two amazing guests to introduce to you now. Jake Marquez is a filmmaker, cinematographer, director, podcaster, and film editor. And Maren Morgan is a podcaster, filmmaker, and aspiring writer. Jake and Maren both grew up with an innate sense that something wasn't quite right in the world. Following a path of creativity, world travel, extreme sports, and dietary experimentation, Jake became a vegan and found that path did not work for him leaving him with a far with far more questions than answers. Marin followed a more conventional path studying psychology, anthropology, and creative writing in college. She graduated with a bachelor's degree in 2019 with the intention to eventually work in some sort of humanitarian field. They are currently creating their documentary called Death in the Garden along with our former guest producer James Connolly said that just video on episode 315. They aim to take the audience on their journey through the messy web of entangled problems and ask, how did we get here? Jake and Marin also hosts the death in the garden podcast, which is absolutely fantastic. You can find Jake and Marin at www.deathinthegarden.org. Guys, welcome to the show.
1: Awesome, man. That was great. That was, so great. That was a fun <laughs> intro. Thank you. <laughs>
0: welcome to the library. Yeah,
1: Yeah, this is a super nice library. I really appreciate nice libraries.
0: This is a really nice library. I was just telling you in the other room, they've got sewing machines and sergers and 3D printers. There's a whole like bike mechanic stand. I work on bikes for people, so I know how much they spent on that kind of thing. Oh yeah, It's like super nice.
1: Yeah, I think well-funded libraries are such an undervalued thing. I remember I used to live in Park City. Uh, for many years and I was a total snow bum up there but the library there has like this awesome video editing suite where you can rent oh, man. really good machines to edit video so early on in like my career I like m- was able to make money because I had access to these <laughs> free computers and I you know I bet there's somebody here who's like life is different because they have access to nice sewing machines that's you amazing know, stuff yeah. like that oh, yeah. that's great I love it
0: that's awesome well I'm a little bit older than you and I remember when libraries first started carrying like VHS tapes and I thought that was like super cool to watch some like crusty old VHS yeah. tape of like a titanic documentary or something stupid <laughs>
1: yeah oh so many cds i used to rip when they had oh, like the nice. cd section and the first like mp3 players came out oh it was free reign man that's so hilarious much music. yeah oh that's uh, great
0: well when we were trying to decide um how we were going to do this recording you guys live basically where i grew up um about a half mile away from there which is pretty cool here uh, in the salt lake valley and i said you know it's probably easier if i pack up my stuff and come to you and you guys were like no we record in a hot sweaty closet yeah. we'll come out to you and i said well i record sitting on the ground in my second bedroom, staring at my cycle clothes. So we better find a neutral location. So it's good luckily, <laughs> luckily, I have a library card, and we we're able to come over here, which is great. Yeah, it's great. Oh fun. yeah,
1: it's great. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Earlier today, I was interviewing um, Sarah Keo. So she works with regenerative farming, um, and she also helps her clients with naturopathic medicine, and um, definitely helps people with nutrition. And as we were talking before the conversation, she was like, "Have you heard of Frederick Lebow?" And mm. I was like, "Yeah, of course." I have. He's amazing, amazing content. She goes, I know. I just listened to a podcast with him in it. It was three hours long. It was amazing. And I was like, Jacob and Merritt, I'm talking to them later today. They're talking about your podcast. Oh, that's so cool. That so I love hearing awesome. that. Yeah. That's great. She's about halfway through. She's absolutely loving it. And we were both so jealous that you were like, we did this three-hour interview, and then we did like a six-hour dinner and got to hang out with this guy yeah. for like an entire day. What was that like?
1: Oh, that, I mean, the dinner afterwards is 10 times better, too. I oh, mean, God. the interview's obviously great, but man, it was just fun to sit down with him and let him rip because he's so focused on these topics, and he knows so much, I mean, what was it like for you? I mean, it was great.
2: I mean, it was amazing. He was brilliant and just, he went off, you know, and was able to talk about all the things that he can't really talk about publicly. And so it was very illuminating for us. And I wish we could have recorded that conversation just for our own reference to like take notes. But we were just there, we were drinking wine, like having like seafood. It was amazing.
1: Yeah. And he's, you know, he's a proper scientist, right? Like he's a proper, he has so much work that's been published in scientific papers. If you look up his name in those like academia journal collector things, like man, he's done some real work. So when you hear something, there's just so much trust that he knows what he's talking about And he has so much to back everything up with. So it was just incredible. Yeah.
0: That's amazing. Well, if I would have known you guys were going to do dinner with him, I would have bugged one of you, put a microphone on one of you to capture that second part of the conversation (laughs) because that was incredible. When, when When I saw it, when it first got released and saw that it was three hours long, I was like, wow, okay, this is a big listen. This is... You know, settle in for this, but it was so easy listening. It was easy to follow along. You guys do a fantastic job on your show. Really appreciate your content and, and how you're able to have meaningful conversations with people. Um, I love the episode with Nina Teicholz mm. and you guys have talked to Lear Keith and a bunch of people that we've also worked with. And so just really love the show. You guys are doing a great job. Thanks, Thanks man. Thank you. So thank, you thank you.
1: Yeah. It's, yeah. it's tricky because whoever's listening, you know, they're all film interviews, right? So that's like we hope they're not too long and too dry, but you know, we're trying to get nice sound bites for a film. So we we inevitably get some good stuff. That's awesome. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. that's great. What is death in the garden?
2: (sighs) Isn't that the question? It's a good question. (laughs) You know, is it okay if I kind of go off on this? Yeah. Um, It really began. We, when Jake and I first met, Jake had just gotten back from Norway and having this carnivore moment And you had just got the carnivore thing was sort of the pendulum swing back from your veganism. And you realized that, you know, veganism wasn't going to work for you for a myriad of different reasons. And you can go into that a little bit later. But um, initially we... We're really, really interested in regenerative agriculture. He showed me The Vegetarian Myth by Lear Keith, which is what he read. Incredible. Yeah, it's a fantastic book in so many different regards. You know, like the way that she talks about civilization and agriculture and industrialization. And there's so many different things that she touches on in that book that I think are really, really important, whether or not you're interested in the like diet wars or not.
0: It was one of those books that I still remember where I was driving in my car, learning some of these concepts and getting your mind blown is crazy. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, yeah.
2: And so I, I was someone who was just desperate to find some sort of meaning in the world. And when Jake sort of offered this book to me and he was like, you just got to read this. Like you got to trust me. You got to read this book. When I read it, I was just completely mind blown. And I knew that I just wanted to understand what this thing called regenerative agriculture is. I needed to know what that looked like. And so we just were lucky enough to kind of have this idea of trying to make this documentary and, but we, when we went out, we recognized pretty early that, you know, the idea that regenerative agriculture on its own is going to save the world, which is really what I wanted to believe was true. Yeah. You know, but when I realized that when we when we had that realization that that isn't the whole story and that there's so much more to this than is even comprehensible, to be honest, we just made a decision that we're not going to just make a movie about regenerative agriculture because that's what we set out to do. We're going to be honest with ourselves and follow this thread wherever it goes. And so that's what we've been doing is we've just been following the thread of the food system, where it came from and where it's going. And so, you know, we're focusing a lot on um, the plant based agenda and where that is sort of perpetuating uh, how Davos and the World Economic Forum has really taken over that narrative and is wanting to feed everyone bugs and feed everyone soy from all over the world. And, you know, there's just so many so many things that when you start to really like un like pull the strings and start untangling this web that we're kind of wrapped up in with the you know global capitalist system and just globalization in general is really fundamentally at the core of all of this We just started recognizing like, wow, the same sort of ideas and narratives are popping up in all of these different so-called solutions to climate change. And all of them are predicated on things like reductionism, um, thinking very mechanistically um, a sort of intrinsic belief that humans are of a higher separate order than the rest of the world um, and that at the base of it. That humans are fundamentally and irrevocably flawed. Like we are a plague on the world and we have to just start slowly, you know, abstaining from our existence, basically. is So it's this sort of conflagration of these different ideas that we're just realizing. It's like this is part of a narrative. This is part of something that is really has the intention to... Control us in a certain aspect, and it's you know, it kind of sounds tinfoil hatty, but really that's that's what's happening. That's what that's what these organizations are doing. You know, they're meant to be the top down hierarchical, like control the masses, give the masses a, a, a story to follow. And we just started realizing after we read books like Ishmael by uh, Daniel Quinn and, and some of his other books that. That's just a story that we're being told and we can tell a different story. And that story, when you follow it down to its its end point, it's not a place where humans are able to be human and where humans are able to feel connection and belonging and love and a relationship with life and death. And so we sort of have just been spending our time the past two and a half years just dissecting these narratives and following them as deeply as we can and really, really asking ourselves, what do we think? Versus, what are we being told to think?
1: Yeah, 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 absolutely. If I can add on to the death in the, you know, what is death in the garden? To add on to this, it's something we really learned early on. It might have even been when we talked with Lear Keith because we also interviewed Derek Jensen, her, you know, co-author and good friend. And through the conversation, I don't know if it was in the interview or not, but I think it was him who pointed out something to us, or I, or I had been thinking about it when I brought it into the conversation was this notion that you know the thing that really makes humans distinct from other animals not better but distinct is that we have a propensity for technology and culture and those two things feed into each other and so if we i mean we all know what technology is but like what is what's culture right like what is culture and if you really tear apart the essence of what culture is it's it's narratives and it's stories it's a story that a people will tell themselves on how to be in the world what the world is who we are, what do we do, what do we do today? Those stories inform us, and that's what culture is. We pass it down, and it's an incredible tool, really. But misused, or to put it more frankly, if we're going to look at you know the world and if we're going to say to ourselves, like, wow, like, there's a lot wrong with the world, and it doesn't seem by any significant measure to be getting better. Why? Why, why, why? Is it because there's too much CO2? Is it because we have too many billionaires? Or is there something harder to reach, but a simpler answer. And I think if you look, and as we've done, and it's been a big intention of ours is to really look at our culture. And Marin is laying out these mythologies that really seem to come up a lot within our culture, whether consciously or subconsciously, that teasing apart those narratives and those stories is really, I think, far more important. And so that's why we've called it death in the garden, because, you know, After coming out of a long journey through veganism, I was able to accept that, okay, this is obviously better for my health. Is it necessarily worse for the planet? Animal ethics, well, that comes from your own epistemological views on what life is. Um, Spirituality, well, I feel way more spiritually connected when I eat meat. You know, so as I was beginning to kind of not see those reasons of going vegan as good reasons to go vegan, the one thing that was really hard for me to let go was the death part. I was like, okay, like... But I still feel really weird that things are going to die for me to live. Like as a really trying to orient my young brain in the world and who I wanted to be, that's kind of a big philosophical quandary to have to like really integrate. And I mean, still, I think I still, I come to that every day. So we call it death in the garden because this, this core uncomfortableness that humans seem to have with death, no matter how, much of a part of life and death it really is you know death is so important we still seem to have problems with it and neuroses around it so death in the garden is in many ways looking at food and looking at death and how those two things can really inform us and maybe help us view the problems we're in a little differently i think the death goes really to the core of our culture and the the death represents the utter lack of control we really have in the world, it's a it's a philosophical problem humans really struggle with. Some of us, some cultures seem to ha- kind of have a dance with it; others, not so much. So that's kind of where Death in the Garden is going is hopefully pulling back and trying to view the problems with a different light and add uh, some way of looking at it differently that might be useful. Mm.
2: Yeah, exactly. Like the the recognition that death represents the most uncontrollable aspect of existence for us. You know, there's no way we can avoid it. We have to experience it. Every single one of us is going to die, whether we like it or not. And recognizing like, okay, so there is some sort of a neurosis there and what culture was built around that neurosis and then what technologies have come in to continue that and reinforce that. And, you know, I could rattle off a bunch of different examples, but um, you know, we think it's very interesting if you sort of follow that trajectory and you follow that. You know, ultimately we, we end up in a point where in 2020, 2022, you know, what death is, is all around us. And it's something that we are trying to control constantly. The end of end times are the thing that you read about all the time. Climate change is the number one thing that is like talked about in the news and the, the way that we are told to deal with it and the only way that we're told to deal with it and the only options we're being given is more control, more and more and more and more control. There's no conversation whatsoever about like, what if we just slowed down a little bit and tried to figure out what actually is causing the problem? Is it really as so simple as carbon in the atmosphere? <laughs> um, and, you know, we can talk about a bit about that and how that's just not actually an adequate response and adequate uh, metric to even view the problem. Um, But, you know, and then you start to break down, you start to break it down and you recognize how, you know, our, our desire to control so much of the living world and ourselves and our bodies and everything has led us to this place where we are utterly confused, lost, you know, depression is just rampant, especially in our generation. Um, there's a lot of despair, a lot of ambivalence, a lot of people who just feel really, really lost. And so, you know, we're just trying to say that, like, what if there's something to this control thing? What if, what if that's something that we didn't always feel that we needed to control the world? What if that was some, what if that we felt that we were once in relationship. And that's and that's just true. And we are in relationship all the time. We're always in relationship with our environment and the world and each other, and we're all connected. And what we're just trying to do is trying to remind people of that, that that this is part of us, this, this connection with life and death, this connection with each other, this belonging we have to the earth, that's always here with us. And for people who feel completely insane and alienated and disconnected, Death in the Garden is really meant to be, like, not an answer necessarily. We're mostly asking questions. Um, But hopefully, hopefully some people will be able to find a little bit of, you know, like, don't know solace, in solace, and the fact that like that you know we don't think they're crazy. We don't think that people are aliens. We understand that feeling of alienation. We f- understand that feeling of feeling very, very lost and disconnected, and really uncomfortable with the the way that the world is wanting to shape us. And so that's just sort of what Death in the Garden is trying to do. Is trying to offer a different story to people.
0: Yeah. Wow, definitely reminds me of the Tao, and mm-hmm. like you can't you can't name the Tao. you found it find the Tao by finding the edges and it's like you're asking those questions you don't necessarily have great answers but the questions are being asked mm-hmm. um i really love that approach so so we started to grow and get a little bit bigger and we have a little bit more of a youtube presence so now i have trolls i have vegan trolls oh, i bet you do oh yeah. they're great they're great so <laughs> so i've I really wanted to engage in just some conversation. And so the number one thing that I'll get is a vegan will come to my page and say, this is stupid. This is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. This is completely wrong. And I'll ask the question like, great, what didn't you like about it? What's what's wrong about it? 90% of the time, there's nothing left. They don't say anything. I have one person in particular who has been responding, you know, and she'll respond with inaccurate numbers which you'll point out the rain numbers with cow and you know cattle and that kind of thing and and the conversation will always shift like i'll say something and it'll be about climate change mm. and then it's not about climate change it's about nutrition and then it's not nutrition anymore it's about you know something else and, and it's ended up every single time that it goes back to something that you refer to which is the uncomfortability of the fact that if i live something has to die and i made the point like look i'm i'm choosing to eat a carnivore diet i i can take one cow that would give me food for a long time i choose to use that as my food and you know she comes back with like well you're <laughs> you're doing that intentionally, intentionally killing that animal, the unintended consequences of agriculture that kills thousands and thousands of animals. She, she's fine with because she's not taking that responsibility. And so I just, I want to know as a former vegan, what what do you think about that? How difficult was that cognitive dissonance to kind of balance your brain out? Because that is, that's valid and very
1: challenging. So challenging, man. And it, and you're so right. It always comes down to it. That's why I wanted to call it Death in the Garden, because it was like, we can play the diet wars. We can go back and forth with environmental data, but it really comes down to the fact that you don't like things, that things die. And, you know, as part of our film, we're kind of documenting where you'll see a lot of these so-called vegan doctors. They're really just animal rights activists, which nothing against animal rights activists. That's just fine. I, I I love you for doing that type of work, but let's call it what it is. Stop pretending to be a doctor or an environmentalist. Just say you don't like the way we treat animals, and that's fine. But, I, you know, it's it's such a hard thing to untangle because humans are so funny. Because, again, to the stories we tell ourselves, people will go, like Lear Keith, 20 years before and know that they're sick on an intuitive level. No,
0: Hardcore.
1: Hardcore. And I mean— So a bit about my story was that, you know, I was plant, uh, somewhat plant based for many years, but then decided for a specific period, about two years, I was pretty close to being vegan the whole time. But there was a seven month period where I ended up living out of a tent in the middle of nowhere, Australia, at a yoga retreat that was owned by the Hare Krishnas. I don't know if you know anything about them, but it's a very uh, not vegan, but as close as you can get to veganism without giving up dairy essentially for the Hari Krishnas and they owned this yoga retreat where the deal was, you know, you could grow the food in the m- or help in the gardens in the morning and then they would let you pitch up your tent. And so as like a broke hippie, it was the perfect situation. Like I get to a- have free food three times a day and live here with a bunch of young, beautiful hippie people. Awesome. But you know, I spent about seven months there and I want to elucidate to people too. You know, we were doing it right is, you know, i I was told so many times you weren't doing veganism, right? But if there was anybody on earth doing veganism right, it was us. We were planting our own food. We were growing our own food in this centropic farming fashion or in organic permaculture. Like, we were doing veganism right. It was earth-to-mouth type veganism. Somewhat raw, somewhat cooked. There was a little bit of dairy in there if you ate at the Hare Krishna temple. So anyways, but even with doing veganism that right, my health just fell apart. You know, it just it really did just fall apart, and it was very obvious. And, I mean, I can go down that whole story of how I started putting those pieces together and how I started looking around me. But I what I did notice is a lot of people, especially in the Hare Krishna community, but also at this yoga retreat who had been vegan for a long time and I just knew and could see weren't feeling good. And I just, I think the promises of veganism, especially if I were to look back at myself as a young person who, feels so disgruntled about the world and is so rightly worried about the world and feels and empathizes with how crazy the world is right now you're offered a solution to all of that and if you just if you think about the concept and what we were all trying to live together right like young people with good intentions and we're meditating and we're doing yoga and it's we're, amazing
0: it's per- yeah, It's amazing
1: it's, you have this vision of paradise of this garden of eden like existence we can get back for ourselves and it seems so obvious. We don't kill things. We just don't kill. It seems so obvious. And it really, there is a comfort in it. There is a big comfort in it. And when you take that away from people, by thinking you don't eat things, you can also displace a lot of psychological energy. It allows you to not have to think about certain things that kind of suck to have to think about, You know, you don't have to think as much about the fact that you're going to die. If you eat this diet, you're actually going to live longer with less disease. That's what you're told. There's, you know, stories of becoming breatharian and living forever. You know, so there's that aspect of it. But it's such a good, it's such a good deal that it's really hard to give it up. And so I think, and people really surround themselves completely, their whole community. I mean, as I, when I left veganism, the thing that I was worried the most about was the the pushback, the vitriol I knew I was going to get from vegans, especially people I knew firsthand. Like that's people don't want to lose their community. They don't want to feel like they've been kicked out of the tribe, especially that tribe. And when you're kicked out of that tribe, it's mean. It's ugly. You're a murderer. Yeah. Like you're a nasty murderer. I mean, I get why they think that. So that's where it comes from. I mean, it's somebody who's like, oh, you eat babies? You know, that's, that's how they feel about it, you know? So it's really hard to feel like you can have the courage or the honesty with your body and your experience. And I also think when you go far enough down veganism, it really, really messes with your head and you become very, very bipolar and unstable and irrational. And there is a lot of anger that lives inside of you when you're a vegan out of pure malnutrition. And all the just slaughter porn you have to watch when you're a vegan. You do you just get angry and you, it it's very frazzling. Wow. You know? Yeah, I think that's probably what I would say to that. Yeah. For what reason did you become vegan? All of it. I think at first it was probably more of a health thing. I had kind of started a health journey maybe around 19. I was dealing with a lot of really bad stomach problems and skin problems. And so at 19, I started like cutting out sugar and just doing common sense things to be healthier. And then I kind of heard about paleo and paleo seemed to make sense. Like, oh, eat like our ancestors, don't eat processed food. Did that for many years. Felt a lot better, but it was I was also doing poor man's paleo. Like I was a broke kid living in New York, so I had, you know. I don't know, 50 bucks a week to get as many vegetables in my body as possible and some like lean, shitty chicken breast meat from Trader Joe's, you know? (laughs) So I always say I was like almost plant-based during those years because there was some years it was just like a pile of broccoli and hemp seeds and whatever I thought was protein packed. So I was was very plant-based for a while. And then I started getting involved in yoga communities and spiritual communities and working on myself and actually having a good time. You know, I was taking a lot of psychedelics and doing them very intentionally and really being, trying to work on myself and trying to figure out my health. And eventually when you're in the spiritual community long enough, you meet enough attractive young people who are vegan and it just seems, it seems right. And so I was kind of transitioning into being fully vegan, no animal products whatsoever. And I kind of kicked off this two year around the world vagabond traveling trip where I bought a one way ticket to Thailand and then figured it out for the rest for the next two years type deal. And, you know, when I, by the time I made it to Australia, I was, you know, completely out of money. So it was this thing where I was like, I had no money. So Gotta that, do something. Yeah, the best option was live for free in a tent and have free food. I was like, awesome, and it's vegan, what I'm doing. So that's kind of how I, I, I fell into it, you know. And so at first it was definitely for health, but the spirituality thing came with it. The environmentalism came with it. By the end, I was all for intentions of being vegan. I was really was really where my head was at whole package oh yeah
0: and that's why it's so enticing you do feel like you're doing your part and on all of those levels i'm doing my part for my health doing my part for the animals i'm doing my part for the planet and this thing that i'm choosing to do is benefiting all of those things is the message
1: exactly exactly it's a you know and like i said before if i was a very passionate young person and well capitalism you know that kind of like it just seems so nice and it's so relieving and it's just like it feels so good and which is so hard when you have to admit that it's not working you know it was so hard to admit but then once i did it was just like oh thank god like it and like free of this mental prison that I'm in. Yeah. Lear talks about that all the time too. And
0: she was starting to connect the dots and she kind of writes her book in that style as well of like, this is me going along the journey and, you know, grappling with the fact that the slugs are going to die to plant her lettuce, which is like my favorite story ever. It's such a good story. (laughs) It's such a good story. Um, But, but yeah, very difficult. Maren for you, what, what has your relationship with food been and how has that been part of your story?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know i grew up with like a uh, my my parents divorced when i was pretty young and it was like both both households the food culture was very very different um but i ate a lot of like processed foods growing up a lot of foods that i you know i i, I look back and i'm like how is that affecting me today you know <laughs> like the amount oh, yeah. of mac and cheese and oreos and stuff oh, yeah, and totally- and <laughs> you know my parents were doing the best that they could and they didn't know um they they didn't know what i know now um but So for me, I think that sort of what happened was I was weirdly, it was weird because I didn't ever think of myself as like more plant-based. But then when I looked back on like the food that I could afford during college or the food that I would cook for myself, I didn't cook any meat for myself. I would have, you know, like sandwich meat and stuff and that would be about it. Um, But I ate a lot of like Mexican food when I was in college. And, but most of the time I was pretty vegetarian. Um, no, just, just by accident, just, just kind of by accident because I had never really, I never really like learned how to cook steak or ground beef or anything like that. Um, I'd never really enjoyed meat that much because I wasn't really eating very good quality meat. I didn't even know what it meant to get good quality meat. Um, but then, uh, when I had met Jake, I was very much trying to eat healthy. I was already on this like path towards wanting to eat more healthy. And I was also working in this um, residential program with young people. I was just I I was very much trying to be a good example as someone who is healthy mentally, physically, emotionally and spiritually Um, so I could be so, so I could show up every day to be a good mentor to these people. Um, but then when I met Jake, you know, he kind of was like, you know, you, you could add more meat into your diet. Like you could add, you know, I was like,
1: you should straight up just eat only
2: meat. Yeah. Yeah. Cause he, he was carnivore. And I I remember like one of our first dates, we went to breakfast and he just ordered like a hamburger patty or like a couple hamburger patties. And I was like, this guy is weird. Like, what? yeah, I was like, (laughs) and, and I still, I still like, um, a lot of like variety in my food, but, um, it was amazing because, I started adding more meat into my diet and it was like my brain turned on Mm. like for the first time in my life. Um, And around that time, you know, I was really cutting down drinking um, you know, a, a lot of aspects of my lifestyle were changing, but it was undeniable that the meat adding this meat to my diet, adding a lot of animal source foods, a lot of butter, ghee, saturated fat, it felt like the lights turned back yeah. on. And so that's why when I read the vegetarian myth, I was just like, oh my God, like, okay. Cause like, I know that this to be, I know this to be true about myself now is that that these, these foods are so important for me to be able to be the person that I need to be and to be able to show up in the world the way that I want to. And so, yeah, so that was, that was really big for me. Um, and uh, previously, like a few years ago, a friend of mine, uh, um, me and my friend were talking and she said something just kind of off the cuff. She was like, I think if I'm ever, if I want to continue eating meat, I needed to kill a chicken and make sure that I can do that. And if I can't, then I probably shouldn't eat meat. And I remember thinking like, that seems really reasonable, you know, and I never really had these huge qualms about, um, killing animals necessarily. Uh, I was offended by the idea of, animals animal agriculture causing climate change. Um that was something that concerned me. That was something I was very curious about and disentangling the narratives and realizing how nuanced it was and realizing how at the same time animals are being mistreated every day around the world are being very abused in these factory farming systems um but that there's another way and we're being told that there's no other way. It's either you're a vegan and you're pure and you're perfect and you're, you're saving the planet or you're this like destructive factory farm, KFO meat, meat eating person. Um, you know, I have always been someone who was like, eh, I'm sure that there's more to this story. Interesting. And yeah. so, so it was like, you know, that, that sort of was my end was like, oh, I can't deny the fact that this meat is like literally making my brain work. Wow.
0: You hear that story so consistently with people who either transition from vegan to carnivore or at least just add more, like you said, meat, saturated fat, animal products back in the diet. And it's like they're waking up. Like You hear that story all the time. Is that what your experience was like, Jake?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I hadn't had any animal products for a very long time. I mean, at least— at least close to a year of like no not even meat like meat not for years but maybe like some broth or some dairy had slipped in but no, no no animal products for a very long time You couldn't even bring animal products onto the property or you'd be like executed uh so i hadn't had anything in the day i you know there was the when it was all kind of coming to me you know i decided i was going to try meat and so the first thing i did is i snuck off the property i like borrowed somebody's car and snuck off the property and i had five dollars you know it's like all I had and so I bought like the shittiest rotisserie chicken CAFO meat from the grocery store and had to like I went under a tree and I ate it in the shade and was like so nervous people were gonna see me but I <laughs> ate it and even though it's this shitty flavorless chicken it was just like my brain was back on and I had been dealing with so much depression and brain fog and like the inability to think clearly or 20 minutes ahead and plan my day like all of a sudden I was like My brain is back online and I feel really good and I want to go on a jog right now. Like it was just like, whoo, like I just felt so good. And that that moment is probably one of the most important moments of my life of just like feeling that thing happen in my body, like actually feeling like my body was trying to communicate with me, like really trying to make sure I understood that moment and how powerful it felt to have that me in my body. And then after then it was just like, okay, this is obvious, yeah. you know, obvious. Wow. Dude,
0: when I get a rotisserie chicken, I turn into a grizzly bear. I Ugh. rip that thing to shreds. I'm just trying to picture you under this tree. Just
1: oh dude ten, like bananas. the <laughs> joints. I opened the marrow. I was eating ligaments, Ugh. like everything. That's amazing. Oh, I couldn't stop myself.
0: Like,
1: <laughs> yeah. So wow. Good. That's
0: amazing. There's somebody in my neighborhood who, um, I'm just kind of helping get started on the carnivore diet. Um, and eating all meat, and she was against it for a really long time. It had really severe skin issues, very severe skin issues. And they're starting to clear clear out um, after a few weeks, which is great. And when I talked to her, she was kind of, like, saying some of the other benefits. And they're all the ones that you hear, like, my joints feel a lot better. Like, my feet are now sore because I'm standing. I can, I can stand. I was, like, had to lay down most of the time. Um, sleep is so much better now. And I asked her this question. I tried to be as mindful as I could – and, and, and say, have you felt the gratitude yet? And it, it, it's, it's this different mm. kind of gratitude or spirituality that you experience that I don't think you can experience any other way. That's been my experience, at least within about two or three weeks of just eating meat. I, my brain was different. I was more spiritual and connected and more grateful for all the weird little things around me all the time.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why it was easy for me to let go of why I thought I was being more spiritual once I ate meat, because there is this and to add on to this, I didn't know what the difference between being full and being satiated was until I started eating only meat, because I'm sure you know, that's where sometimes like I can eat endless rice checks, right? I can do that all day and like literally be dying from pain and keep doing it. There's this point with meat where your body's like, nope, I'm done. And you can't even – you can't put more in your mouth because your brain doesn't let you. It's like you're done and then you're good forever. But then also, yeah, this gratitude of like – because after I left veganism, I pretty much dove headfirst into carnivore. Like I was like, I'm going carnivore. Like I need to heal my body. And, you know, I instantly gained muscle. I instantly had a sex drive again. I instantly was more calm, happier, and just felt way more content in the world. And way more peaceful and way more compassionate to everybody else, even though I knew all my friends would judge me. And just the gratitude of feeling satiated and feeling okay in your body and feeling like you're not being malnourished. And then also understanding that like an animal gave that to you, an animal died and being like, whoa, that's the best part of it is that it's made me more responsible for my life than I ever was as a vegan. It's easy to not think about where your food comes when you're a vegan. It really is because at least it's not meat. But once you feel so good in your body, you can't help but be feeling like you need to be more responsible and you need to think about where the meat comes from. It's like, okay, if I'm going to eat this much meat, I can't lie that like an animal is an important organism. It's an important, it's life is, is as important as it is to itself as it is, as mine is to me. And I have to recognize that I I get a little frustrated in the carnivore community when there is the. Some people overlook how important it is. It still is to take care of animals. And I get that we need to feed everybody, but this should really push us to fight for a better world and a more just and equitable and ethical food system. It's not that we don't eat less animals. I think everybody should eat as much meat as they need to feel as awesome as we've experienced on the carnivore diet. I wish that on everybody because everybody deserves that. But what that should do is make us really take ownership over our lives and know where the food comes from and know the farmers are getting a good pay and know the soil is being regenerated. We, we really owe it to the rest of life to do that if we're being gifted feeling that good in our bodies.
2: Yeah, And and that's why I feel like one of the biggest blessings that we've had during this project is we've met so many former vegans who are doing the most incredible work with animals and the, the way that they are able to articulate their experience of like going all in and being, you know, like being like, I will sacrifice anything for the planet, for animals. And, and then coming to this realization of like, actually what this really means when I really am honest with myself, if I really want to access that gratitude you're talking about, I feel like you have to be honest and you have to get to that place of honesty. All of these people came to like, i need to hold the knife you know yeah. like and and i think and that's and that's where we've come to as well is like you know and and i've also recognized in myself how um how how f- for my physical spiritual and psychological health the fact that i'm not in a position right now where i can kill my own food is actually really like really damaging to me um and You know, it's just, but, but it's been very inspiring to see so many people and so many young people, like so many of these people who are our friends, who are Mm. incredible people doing amazing things and the compassion that they have for animals, they know comes from the fact that it's like, if I want to have the most compassion for animals, it's because I give it the clean death. I give it the merciful death. I give it the loving, generous, compassionate death. And like, you know, and They've all gone on these incredible journeys and we've just been lucky enough to listen and yeah. you know.
1: I, I think one of the the blessings that can come from the vegan world is that those who manage to get out of it fairly cleanly quite often, you know, we go in like a circle. It's kind of like the Homer's tale, right? Like we we leave home and we come back to eating meat, but we're totally different and we see it's not unconscious and it's intentional. And we go on we leave eating meat but we come back being a different person and i think i actually encourage people to do that when i hear people who are like you know just the thought of meat weirds me out i'm not necessarily like well you're just you don't know enough it's like go on that journey for yourself but please like listen to your body and like make sure you're being honest and you don't get caught up in stupid ideas i i i always say you know the four intentions people go vegan are for human health planetary health animal ethics and the quasi fourth reason is the spirituality higher vibration purity thing all four, I mean, if you have those intentions for your life, I like you. You're probably my friend. You're probably, you're trying to be a totally. good person. You know what I mean? I really love those intentions. I think we've been misguided on how to address those intentions in our life. That's my only point. You know? Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's really thoughtful. And you know what? I grapple with that all the time because I don't hold the knife myself. I don't kill what I eat and it's tough. I don't always get the best, highest quality. Sometimes I'm getting conventional meat and it. I still feel Like, I feel more connected with my food, and I feel like there was a life there, but I also really enjoy taking steps to get closer and closer to my food, and one day I want to do the same thing. I want to be part of a conscious kill and have that meat be in my freezer, which is amazing, but tell us a little bit more about what you've learned as far as that kind of journey, as far as, like, getting closer to your food and and getting into regenerative agriculture.
2: Yeah, wow. Oh, it's been, it's been it's been the journey it's been of a, a lifetime. It's, it's, it's been crazy. It's insane. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Where to begin with that, you know, and just, and just to say just to, for, for your audience's sake, you know, it's like, we're not perfect and we 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 also don't hold this sort of um, impossible standard for ourselves or anybody else. It, it's 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 like yeah. you were saying it's it's about the intention of getting closer to yeah. it and about the intention of having that gratitude, having that reverence and really just like working to understand, you know, it's it's really important for everyone to to have that experience and you know, unfortunately we live in a society where economics dictates so much of what we eat. And, and so, you know, I, I completely understand how challenging it is to get really good quality meat and to have that experience. We are very, very privileged to be able to have the connections that we've had to be able to go have these experiences. Yeah. So And,
1: I, and I, I think this is one of the tricky things about modern civilization is that we've put ourselves in a situation where, you know, the healthiest and best grown food isn't a given right to a child, right? So many families, the child the parents of that child have to do the best what they what they can and it in you know diana rogers talks a lot about this where it's like yeah we got to get rid of factory farming but at the same time we got to feed kids foods that are going to set them up for the rest of their lives so i don't i don't i'm not i mean obviously we got to ease off of factory farming but at the same time we have got a lot of people and we have built the system in a way where if we don't have that right now some people aren't going to get certain nutrients in their diet, not to justify it as something we should continue investing in. It's a good point. Right. Yeah. Right.
2: It's like our, our North Star should still be continuing towards a, a wholesale change of our entire food system, putting small regenerative farms at the center of it that are local to our your your ecosystem.
1: And we can get into you know the thing we think about, the ripple effect of transitioning to a regenerative localized system is beyond the most powerful social transformation we could possibly see in our lifetimes if it were to be realized. And I think that's the thing we get so excited about. We were really lucky early on that we got to get connected to Bobby Gill from the Savory Institute. And Bobby, when we first started making the documentary, we kind of pitched him the idea of what we're doing just to see if he had any connections for us. And he just kind of lined up all these big players in because we were really focused on animal agriculture at first. Cause I was like, I'm a carnivore, like I'm, I'm more like, can we heal the planet with meat? So we contacted the Savory Institute and they, you know, set us up with a lot of their hubs, their their savory hubs. So we were so lucky to early on just be welcomed onto these incredible properties where you're obviously seeing way healthier land. You're seeing huge, tall, lush grass, happy animals, running rivers, like you get to see it. In action, and so we just got so lucky that now we, we've been able to connect with regenerative farmers all over the world. We were in Sweden, we were in Turkey. We know people all over the United States who are doing animal uh, regen ag with animal agriculture, and so it's we've been so lucky. But there, again, the way we've set up the system, there are so many barriers for a proper regenerative localized movement to really take hold and to really flourish and grab. And, you know, we can get nitpicky here and say, you know, Oh, well consumers. There's not a big consumer demand or this or that, but there seems to be a lack of the thing. I think we're worried about is defining what regeneration really is, right? Because the system at large wants to take the language of regeneration and sta- um, put it on a label and make it very convenient for people to get at Costco, right? And so if you get on Cargill's website, Cargill is now regenerative. Oh, and these, good. You know, the demons of the world are really good at turning pop culture's language in on itself for their own doing. And so we're trying to be, and we've talked with a lot of farmers where we have this conversation where they're like, we, we're kind of losing our control of what that actually means because – it's not just about regenerating soil. And I think this is the part where Marin was referring to earlier as we went on this journey of researching ag and getting firsthand experience of what that world was like, we realized it wasn't gonna be the catch all because you can't, it's not, you know, dying soils aren't the only problem we have. And if we're gonna create a regenerative food system, it's not just about regenerating soil, it's about regenerating our communities, our social bonds, the way it should really alter our economics. I think if we don't change the economic system, you're never going to be able to regenerate on a full scale. If we don't change the USDA processing system, you can't regenerate. A lot of farmers are in a a really shitty situation right now where they'll spend years raising these cattle, regenerating soil, putting so much care and love and detail, not just to the animal, but to the whole landscape. And then, because the way the politics are, they have to... Put that animal on a truck, ship it six hours, stress it the hell out, take it to a USDA facility where they hold it there from anywhere from a few days to a few weeks, stress it out, it's fluorescent lit, without its herd, without its community, and then go through this machine. And that's the tricky part we're at with Regen Ag, where there's these crucial bottlenecks that are really limiting the potential. But if those were removed and reimagined, man, could there be a flourishing of local access foods? You know, we just bought a cow from a local farm and were able to divvy it up with our family, which was an awesome experience. But, you know, it was we could tell it was a little bit tricky for the farmers. They had to take our order ahead of time and then know the cuts and then, oh, but the processor won't give you that organ because it's too much work. Or, you know, there's as we become more conscious about the way we eat, like we want all the fat so we can make tallow. We want the bone. We want everything But because of the economics, the processing facilities, like we have 200,000 cattle to do in the next month. We're not going to like cater to your needs. It's getting shoved in a plastic bag and shipped to you, however it ends up. And that's really frustrating for a lot of farmers.
2: Right. And and that's the whole thing with like (laughs) one of the benefits, I think, to us being completely separated from agriculture as far as like our upbringing is that we've been able to come into this with a very, very clear head about like, what could actually be the best way to go about this? You know, rather like, well, like we don't have all of these assumptions we've baked in already. We, we are able to just be like, well, it, it would make more sense for food to be less convenient. You know, like the sort of like slow food sort of movement. And, and I understand that that's like a controversial thing to say. It's not c- food has become convenient because that's the culture. That's the technology that has reinforced our culture, our cultural narratives around food. But really when you think about, the potential. And when you witness the potential of what food can be, when we've been at these farms, when you're drinking raw milk straight from your friend's cow, you know, that he <laughs> just milked that morning and you're eating the, the, the sheep that, you know, like it was, it was bled out in the soil and it was surrounded by its herd or, or, or by its flock. And y- y- it feels different. And, and that's where the sort of spirituality thing comes in for me is like, I know the difference between that and the food that I can buy at the grocery store. Um, And the the only way for me to have that kind of food is for me to really find that farm myself, engage with it, or have my own farm. And luckily there's a lot of, a lot of people doing just that. Um, The problem is, is that they don't have enough access right now. It's not accessible for consumers and it's also not accessible for the farmers um, because, you know, it's still, we, we still live in a culture where it's dominated by a handful of big players who are making all of the money. And it, you know, that's just, it, 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 it ties into the convenience thing. It's less convenient to go, you know, buy your eggs from your neighbor who lives 30 miles down the road or something. But that person, is probably raising their eggs better than the farmer, the regenerative farmer that, you know, you maybe found on Instagram or something um, that you have to ship from across the country. Um, But, you know, there's a lot of nuances there, but um, the the thing that we found to be so powerful about regenerative agriculture is the connection to place and the community that you can create around food um, and around death. Um, The death part is, is one of the most spiritual parts of the whole thing. In my opinion, we've, we've had the privilege of watching, of, of being able to witness several slaughters and I've had the pleasure of being able to kill a sheep myself. And that experience of taking life and taking it really, really well is, is something that I think that people just need to understand is, is like. It's a really beautiful thing and it, it, you know, it's like, there's been so many times where I've like told, talked about this with people and people are like, oh, I don't want to hear that. Like that's, you know, <laughs> that sounds kind of scary. That sounds crazy. Um, I don't know if I can watch that part of your film, um, but really what regenerative agriculture has offered us, because I think we went into it so much with the intention of, of wanting to talk about death is we have allowed ourselves to have a really beautiful confrontation with it um, and witnessing how animals react when things die how the how the air feels when something dies how you feel it it's it's be the the being dissipate through through the rest of the ecosystem um and then you know you also watch it happen like we were at a friend's farm uh, a few like a month or two ago and we, we didn't get to see it unfortunately but um he slaughtered a cow and uh gutted it uh under this big oak tree and within 30 minutes there were like 30 turkey vultures just getting getting all of the guts and life
1: doing its thing wow
2: li- li- life yeah. coming through and into reintegrating that being back into the system and so for me it's like that's the most important thing about regenerative agriculture is it gives me access to a food source that is closing the loop And like one day I will be reintegrated back into the system too. And so it's like, it feels like such a beautiful opportunity to honor the, the the fact that life is this cycle and death isn't the end. And it may feel like an ending and in a way it is, but it's also a rebirth because, you know, now those turkey vultures got to eat all that food and like, you know, the microorganisms like we've seen so many decaying carcasses and the amount of life, I mean, it pulses with life there's so many bugs that literally rely on death in the landscape. And there's so many parts, like, you know, the, you you see the way that like the land will just explode with life where something died. And, and that's, that's one thing that I think is so important um, to talk about in regenerative agriculture is like, there needs to be death on the land. There needs to be blood in the land and bones in the land. And like, and so that's something that, that we feel really strongly about. And I think that that's something that had we come from a more um, agricultural background, we might not like necessarily think of it that way or because it's so much more about like procuring f- food for humans. But then when you, when you come, to, when we were as ignorant as we were and we were meeting these people who were thinking about things so like, you yeah, know, I it, think... so trippy and like, it, then then we were like, wow, oh my God, like, yes, it's okay. Like if, if an animal dies, that's not just a waste of money, you know, like that's because that can be the sort of farm perspective sometimes. Right. Is like, that that animal is, is um, a being that is loved and cared about and nurtured, but it's also a source of income. Um, But there are some people that we've had the privilege of being around that. um, You know, that's not why they're farming necessarily. It's not really about, it's not necessarily about the making of the money. It's about the land. It's about the like, you know, really restoring and regenerating the land. And, you know, they have been able to impart that wisdom of like how important the death part is and, I mean, it's been a real blessing to be able to witness that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I've been saying this a lot lately that I think farmers are the real philosophers, mm-hmm. especially regenerative farmers, because I mean, not all farmers. And I, I, I think we we really undervalue farmers in modern culture. I think we they get a bad rap. And in many ways, I understand that if we go to the Midwest and look at how much industrial chemical monoculture there is, I get why there's stigma around farmers but i think it started long before that but i think we should re- i think if we if we think about the role of a farmer as somebody who is literally doing the work and interacting with the rest of nature on your behalf and and who is responsible for a landscape and is responsible for giving you the thing that keeps you alive and builds your body like food as an item especially like red meat is such a symbolic thing if we think about it and we should really see it as some weird religious item like mm-hmm. Damn, like that's a cut of meat. It's not just like air, that's meat. What does that mean that's meat? And I think um, all the regenerative farmers we meet, we very rarely talk about like nitty-gritty of how to put up an electric fence and blah 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 it's always like philosophy of like what do you think and you know they have to look at their land in such a creative way to say oh you know the grass didn't grow this much we didn't get this much rain that one species of bird doesn't come and the beetles are like uh." you know they have to really be like they're tuned in if you want to have no input agriculture you can do it you know ambient air and sunlight you can make a ton of food out of that you have to pay attention to how everything wants to balance itself out and you can't just have soil health it's water it's there's so many factors to regeneration like true regeneration and it's a it's a weird algorithm that they're. It's the Dao. We were talking about the Dao before. It's like they're little Taoist gardeners in their own way. Mm. And
2: and part of also you know being able to truly value farmers is it's like they can't be trapped in this capitalistic system. Like it's really hard in order, to be
1: regenerative. Yeah, with Capitalism.
2: Yeah. In order for them to really have the ability to truly do the work that they are capable of doing, like and, and you know and J- just as Jake said, you know, it's like it's so true that they. Farmers are truly some of the smartest people I've ever met. Like we, and we've talked to like authors and philosophers and you know, these farmers like are are (laughs) even beyond them. Um, And, but, but it's like, the fact that it, it it has to be so much about making money because farmers are so disenfranchised. Farmers have no help. And the help that they do have that, you know, people always want to kind of blame farmers for the subsidy system. It's like that's that's enough for them to scrape by. We have a very, very unjust and unequitable system when it comes to the subsidies in this country and around the world. Um, you know, most of those subsidies are going to like those four you know, like the ABCD, like the, you know, Archer's Daniel Midland um, um, Dreyfus, bungee, Cargill, they're getting the vast majority of the subsidies and they're just making processed foods and commodities if if we really really want to restore the world, we have to give farmers the opportunity to like, experiment and like have things die on their land so that their land can be revitalized and, and have these cycles of life and death integrated into their integrated into their bottom line, honestly. Yeah. Um, but that's just not possible right now because of the way that the, the whole system has been completely, you know, taken over by corporate corporations basically.
1: Yeah. yeah. The, the food system its not, we don't have a food system. We have a commodity system. We have, we have a section of the economy is what we have. And regenerative ag realized to its ultimate potential is a proper food system. That's a food system. That's how you grow food for a society. Is regen ag. What we have now is just a way. It's just a weapon for the United States, essentially. But I won't go on that soapbox.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, you're good. I'm sure this is way lighter than what you guys have seen up close. But I think if somebody hasn't really considered some of these concepts, watching a documentary like the biggest little farm or something, you you get you get a sense at least of like this is what problem solving is like in nature. It's not just one way we're gonna grow this one thing here. Like things are happening all the time and you're using natural kind of solutions to natural problems. And and at least to be able to kind of get a sense of what what farmers have to do in those conditions. I I certainly appreciated it a lot more.
1: Yeah. yeah. Biggest Little Farm is great. But if you notice in that film, and this is the thing that, you know, they had a big investment. That's right. They were able to just grow a ton of of worm poop. And I mean, their their system is great. They're making a lot of good food. Their ecosystem has come back alive, but people don't have that luxury of millions of dollars. And I think this is my, one of my things that I want to push for is that every year there's $780 million uh, 780 billion dollars, almost a trillion dollars every year put into the subsidy system to pay farmers to either leave land fallow or to pay them to to make the crop insurance. Like, they know that they can make money off the soy, corn, and wheat, you know? And rightly so. A lot of people survive off of that. But if even a small part of that money, and a lot of it goes towards the food stamp system as well, so they paid to have the food grown and they paid to feed it to people, you know? So we do have some sort of a public food system, but if a little bit of that money was just Allocated to a farmer who needs seven years to transfer. Because this is the thing with regeneration, like as in Biggest Little Farm, I wasn't until year seven that things start popping and really yeah. clicking in. And that's with a lot of money. And so farmers, they need time and they need some resources. And a lot of farms have to have a transition period where they're putting some inputs in, they're buying some feed, they're buying minerals to give to the animals so that the manure is better and that actually gets the mineral cycle going back into the soil. They need time and regeneration takes time. You can get results really fast, immediately, but it does take time to be kind of your own homeostatic little little ecosystem when you start. So I think, again, we have to support farmers, and we have to see the vision that we really want the food. We we as citizens have to really demand that. That's the food system we want, obviously. And it takes care of so much. So much of our environmental stuff can truly be taken care of doing agriculture a lot differently. And we can make a lot of really good food. We really can. Mm.
0: Maren, you warned me uh, that you guys typically generate more questions than answers, and this is one of those conversations <laughs> where uh, it, it's hard to describe. I feel equal parts empowered and knowing that there could be this like great way of doing things, and we can support it, and it can grow and build over time. And this also like dread of like, oh yeah, this is never going to change in our lifetimes, for sure not. So I guess what what, what do you recommend? You know, if you if you could talk to somebody for a minute or two, what would you recommend to say? Like, this is what th- these are the things you should think of when you're thinking about how to feed yourself, and 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 what things do you recommend for you know getting closer to that kind of dream of where we want our food system to go? Yeah.
2: Oh yeah, it's so hard. It's like because. <laughs> This is sort of the problem is it's like we, so much of what we're trying to come at this project with is, is less about prescriptions and more about descriptions and generating those questions Um, because of the fact that so many of the problems that we face today are because we are trying to just add new programs to a broken system. And what we really need is, a new system entirely with no programs at all. And so I would say that going on a journey is, is what is it, going on your own authentic journey is going to be what's the most impactful. Cause that's actually, what's going to change your mind. You know, that's, that's what a person is actually going to need to be able to sustainably work towards a deeper understanding of these ideas. Um, and that's, and that's really what death in the garden is aiming to do is go is show people our journey so that people can go have their own journey. They may come to different conclusions than us. Um, but I, I think that just, if if I were to offer a sort of a prescription, I would say stop assuming that a label on a, on a package is sufficient to, answer your sort of anxiety about maybe where your food comes from. Um, Take that extra step, go a little deeper, read a little bit more, really think about it. Go, go to your farmer's market. It's usually cheaper to buy meat at the farmer's market than it is at the grocery store. Mm -hmm. Actually in our, in our experience, Um, that's not true about like, you know, if you're trying to buy like a chicken, but for ground beef, something like that, you can have a conversation with that person, with that farmer, have that face to face interaction because that is a wonderful step to start understanding that there's a human being on the other side of this transaction and that it, it can help you start thinking about money and start thinking about where your food comes from and knowing that, you know, I'm eating of my landscape. I'm eating an animal that ate the the land that I live on. And if if you can go into that sort of experience with a really open mind and then I think that you can start being going on this journey. I think a farmer's market is a fantastic place to start. Um, uh,
1: if I could add on to yeah. this, you know, I think... I think, you know, your work and your podcast speaks to this. Health is a really good place to start with yourselves because once you find out what works for you, not just for your diet, which is obviously so important, but like lifestyle, sleeping schedules, how much sun am I getting? When you figure out, like when you start feeling good in your body, that's where you're like, okay, how do I make this consistent and real and affordable? Because I got to stay locked into this little rhythm I got going. I mean, I'm sure you know that where it's like, I, you know, I'm pretty good at saying no to things. I'm pretty saying good at, I don't want to eat that. I don't want to do that because I, I know when I feel good in my body, emotionally, physically, all these things. And I think that that's how my journey went is, you know, wow, I feel better. How do I pull off having a lot of meat in my diet and how I pull it off feeling okay with that? How do I feel You know that I'm not destroying the planet, that I'm not destroying my health, that I'm not being cruel? How do I retain this happiness because we all deserve healthy bodies? And that's the most passionate thing I'm about is encouraging people to at least think about meat differently because I know people aren't benefiting from having meat in their diet and they should. And I think the world, a lot of what we see in the world, especially you know, 10,000 years ago after agriculture, it's pretty clear we got shorter and sicker and more malnourished the moment we started having grains. And I just think about... The past 10,000 years, how much of the violence and the political unrest and whatnot is from communities not having food, not having proper nutrition? I, I, you know, I, I do think Frederick said this in, our, in, a, in, the, in the interview we did with him that, you know, I think we should really start with happy, healthy humans first. It doesn't matter everything else should come after that and honestly most of the stuff might just follow suit pretty organically if people were if we figured out how to get people real good food from a good healthy environment i think things would follow so i think once people find out what helps them lose the weight or heal the stomach or whatever it is lock into that and make sure like you 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 make your life orbit around that slowly and gradually to whatever capacity you have i think yeah.
2: And I think everybody has their own in, you know, like as we were kind of just saying, you know, we both had very different experiences and have ended up in a similar place. And I also think likewise that people can have a different uh, end result too. You know, like we're, we're making a documentary and one day we would like to raise animals and we'd like to do certain things. But I don't think that that's like the world doesn't need everyone to become a regenerative farmer. There's other things that people can do to start working towards a better world that I think that. I believe is possible and I know is possible. And, you know, one of the things that I've been thinking about the past couple of days is that really animates me is I've just had so many experiences of hope and despair at the same time. You know, like there's been a lot of grief, but also a lot of light, a lot of like, Just like awe-inspiring experiences that have really made me feel like this—this is possible, but it's going to take a lot of work. And that's why—that's why it's like it's hard when it's like, you know, what's something that people can do? It's like, yes, that's so important. It's like, like everyone needs a place to start, but it's the follow-through right now that I think is most important, especially when you know a a big part of our audience. uh, Our audience is—we're really trying to make this film very um, accessible for everybody. Like, because I, cause like I said, I think everybody has an in, like, I think some people like might just need to taste the fact that grass fed beef tastes better than grain fed beef, you know, that might be enough. Um, but everybody has an in and everybody has a role in a regenerated world in a world where we are putting, we're, we're. we're it's pro-human. We live in a very anti-human culture. We we have a really beautiful world for things and for stuff, but it's really, really not working that well for a lot of people in so many myriad ways. And when you really break down those things, you start to see it. Um, and so I think that, you know, get your in and then find your follow through. What gift do you have to offer? Because everybody's gift is going to be different and everybody's gift is going to be needed. Um, You know, there's, we're going to, there's going to like, like Jake was mentioning earlier, the USDA system, that is a huge log jam when it comes to us creating a, a regenerative world. And I'm not a lawyer or I'm not someone who can write legislation. That's not something that I know how to do. Like, but there are people in the world who have the ability to do that kind of thing. And, you know, but like I said, it's about the follow through. It's about recognizing how important this is. You know, like I was saying previously, we are bombarded by news of end times all the time. And I think that right now they're trying to scare us and they're trying to make us feel really, really hopeless so that we just follow their prescriptions for everything and we start adopting their programs. But the people who are who are in charge of these narratives, the UN and the World Economic Forum, they're not. They're they're dislocated from the world that we live in. That that mm-hmm. the three of us and everyone in this library are a part of, um, and we have so much power together if we really, really just start taking responsibility. And so I think that if if anything, it's like that's sort of how I feel. Is like. Um, we have to take a lot of responsibility we live in a hard time that's just the 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 truth you know and whatever a person may believe about why that is and whether they believe that you know they were born here at this time for for, for a reason um i think if we have that view that this is going to be a hard time. It's not going to be easy. You know, like there are things in my life that I'm like, okay, if I ever want to have children, it's going to be a little harder than, you know, maybe my parents when things were in the nineties, like the economy was great and everything seemed perfect. And the future was like bright. And then, you know, nine 11 happened. And then it, you know, just subsequently has been like shittier and shittier and shittier my whole life. Yeah. Like things, things have just been, you know, th- things are hard. Um, well,
1: and you know, if I can add to what you're saying, you know, one thing Marin and I have had to deal with a lot while filming this project. Because we've gone all over the world, and we've intentionally made sure we firsthand saw what we were talking about. So. We we know the despair because we've seen it firsthand. Like we know how bad like the food like we could do four hours on just how crazy bad the modern food system is. Like we have set it up in a way that it's very very likely in our lifetimes we're going to see a lot of people starving and they already are starving. There's already 800 million people who go hungry every day. We're going to see a lot more. Very very likely. We have made a really insane food system and that's really hard to see. We're going to the Central Valley of California tomorrow to spend two weeks traveling to the Central Valley. And Central Valley is like Satan's playground, man. It's this dead—it used to be one of the most biodiverse wetlands in North America, and now it's dead. Beyond dead. It's negative life. Like, it's crazy how destroyed it is. So it's real. And so for anybody who's listening, like, feel those feels, too. It's important that we all collectively say, yeah, we fucked up. Like, man, the world is dark right now. But— not in it's not over like there is a lot we can do if you if we were to heal the say hydrology system in this country man we would have a very resilient land base yeah
2: yeah and and you know that's to say nothing of like The other angles of death in the garden, you know, we're also talking about other so-called solutions to climate change. And, you know, we've also witnessed firsthand the devastation of things like mining for electric vehicles and for renewable energies. And we've also, we also are very aware of like, um, you know, the human rights violations that come with things like conservation and, you know, and, and it's not to say that all of these things are bad all the time, but like, unless we really, really look at these things, honestly, And really start to ask ourselves like, oh, am I just trying to accept an easy answer to a a problem that could really like, I mean, the way that I see it is it's like I've never had more meaning in my life than when I when I really started looking at the world as honestly as I could. And I think that a lot of people are so starved for meaning right now. And so I think I would say, like, let that grief animate you, like, let that take you on a journey towards something that you never would have expected for yourself, you know? And I, and, and it's not, it's not easy. Like, and, and we're very privileged to be able to do what we're doing. Um, but I just think that I think that there's a lot of young people right now who really, really want to feel like they can do good in the world. And they feel like the things that are being offered don't make sense or aren't working. And this is just kind of like our call to, to try to ask some of those questions and hopefully answer some questions for people. This is our way of making meaning in the world and making sense of things. And hopefully sharing it will be of value. Wow.
0: Wow. Well, it is amazing work and we definitely appreciate what you guys are doing and the conversations you're bringing to the table. I think just to participate, to have the conversation, to listen in on a conversation get, gets you more excited to, to do something, to take a little step. And so I've really appreciated this time with you guys Jake and Marin, where would you like people to go to find you and connect with you and your work?
1: Yes, so we have deathinthegarden.org, which Marin desperately wants to re-so. It's not finished. Uh, Deathinthegarden.org, Instagram, deathinthegarden, one word. On Twitter, we're...
2: Death underscore the garden. The garden. I think. And then
1: we're on (laughs) Substack, Substack as well, which Maren's been doing awesome writing on there. Death in the Garden on Substack. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I just heard that, actually. You guys are moving away from Instagram kind of stuff because the content is just, I mean, you, you have 10 seconds to, to it's grab so somebody's hard. attention. Yeah. so dumb. I hate it. It's
2: just not nuanced enough. Like, there's just so much complexity and depth, and I just really like Substack. It gives me the opportunity to write out the entirety of the thoughts that I've, Feel are important to share, and right now I'm writing a piece talking about some of the current crises that we're experiencing, um, and relating it back to the Haber-Bosch process and the culture that created that. And so, you know, go check it out: deathinthegarden.substack.com.
0: Yeah, it's amazing! Yeah. Wow, we will link to all of that in the show notes, guys. We did this interview at the daybreak. Library. We have not been shushed by a librarian this entire time. This is great. It's great. Yeah, we have left alone. Josh and Marion, like I said, thank you so very much for your important work. Um, it's it's difficult again to feel like there's more questions than there's answers, but it also helps to know that there is a direction that we can move. And on especially on an individual level, we can do better than we're doing now. So thank you That's so very much for dropping by and um, grab a grab a VHS tape on the way out. And, uh, <laughs> really appreciate your time. Thanks for coming Thanks today. You so thank much, you. Casey. We'll do it again. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. And this has been another episode of Boundless Body Radio. As always, thank you so very much for listening to and supporting Boundless Body Radio. It has been such a joy to go on this journey now that it's been two years of doing these episodes and all the amazing conversations that we've had with thought leaders and to be able to share this message around the world with literally hundreds of thousands of people has been so amazing. If you haven't already, please go over to Apple, leave us a rating and review as it's the best way for the show to continue to grow and touch more lives of people out there. I am so excited to announce that we are launching the Boundless Body Radio Premium Podcast. This is something that I have been working really hard at for a very long time and something I am very proud of. Now that we have done over 300 episodes, our content can be a little bit overwhelming if you really want to learn about one particular topic and really zero in on that topic. So that is exactly what I have done. I have gone through all of our episodes, taken the very best clips all about one particular topic and put them into long-form very informative and concise episodes called the Boundless Body Radio Premium Podcast. That can be found on our brand new Patreon page, which I'm really excited to announce as we have all kinds of different offers there and different tiers. We're including early releases of our show Boundless Body Radio. We typically keep about 15 to 20 episodes scheduled at any given time. So we have options there where you can have early access to those. We're also offering group and one-on-one coaching and also access to these premium podcast episodes, the Boundless body radio premium podcast. We have three that are launching right now, and I will be making a new one every other week. And we believe that we are providing these for a very, very high value. So please check us out on Patreon, check the link in the notes to be able to get there. And thank you as always for listening to boundless body radio.